week three, Malachi chapter uh, two, will revival come. They were living in an in-between time. They were in between great, extraordinary moves of God's power. God had done some incredible things, but now it was only a distant memory. And the people were complaining, where is this God who everybody said, and maybe still says, is so great. Why isn't he moving here like he did back then, or with those people over there? Doesn't he love us anymore like he loved those people? He's forgotten us, abandoned us maybe. And so there they were, full of their complaints about God, and in Malachi, God makes his response to the people. You've turned from me, Yet you wonder where I am. And so we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. The emphasis shifts now from worship to lifestyle, which as we know are inextricably linked right the way through uh, the Bible. True worship that flows out of a a living relationship uh, with God. Worship that fills uh, our lives with His presence comes out of a life that's given, dedicated, obedient to God. And the Bible has a word for a life that's dedicated and obedient to Him, and it's the word holy. It's not a very attractive word. We haven't uh, blessed it with good connotations. The idea of being holy. We've made Sunday holy historically by removing most things that might be pleasant, encouraging, and enjoyable from uh, a Sunday. Even the budgie gets his swing taken out lest he might enjoy himself, which wouldn't be holy. We talk about the church building being holy, meaning don't laugh or shout or run or relax because it's holy somehow. Fantastically, the Bible talks uh, in a very different way about holiness. And I'd like you to grab a Bible just in front of you and turn to page 719, which is where Isaiah gives just a little description of what holiness might be like. Page 719, Isaiah chapter 35 and uh, from verse 8. And suspend, if you can, just for a moment, our own idea of holiness uh, and see what we read uh, about it there, he says, still unable to find it. Here we go, verse 8. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. Sounds dreadful, doesn't it? The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. And then a description of what it will be like. No lion uh, will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get upon it. It will be a place of safety and a place of peace. But more than that, only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion, Jerusalem, God's presence, God's people, with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Holiness, the way of holiness brings us not only to a place of peace, but a place of joy, of singing, celebration, gladness and joy will overtake us and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's the goal of holiness because it brings us ever nearer a God who champions these things. 
Jesus was the holiest person who has ever lived, yet he was the giver of abundant life. We might have grown up with the understanding that you can have abundant life or you can be holy. But the two somehow don't meet. In the Bible, they meet every time. The source of true abundance is to live holy, to live right before God in thought and word and deed. Holiness takes us ever nearer the God from whom all good things flow. And holiness is therefore always necessary for a work of God. You will not get a work of God without holiness because God moves in holy people because He is a holy God. Make every effort, therefore Paul says, uh, or the writer to the Hebrews says rather, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Give your whole life to holiness. Because without it, you will not see the Lord. And without seeing the Lord, the abundant life, the joy, the freedom that all of that brings will always elude us. Holiness then is always a mark of God on the move. Always a mark of God moving in revival type power. Many of you will be familiar with the writings of Selwyn Hughes because he wrote for many years Every Day with Jesus, the daily Bible devotion. He's uh, 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 dead now, died a few years ago, and was the founder of an organization called CWR, Crusade for World Revival. And he writes, Every great move of God since Pentecost has contained this impressive ingredient. It's probably true to say that the very first evidence that revival is present is when men and women are gripped by a heightened sense of God's awesomeness and holiness. Conduct that hitherto appeared respectable now seems unbelievably wicked. Prejudices that characterized professing Christians for years are seen now as grievous sins. Private indulgences, upon which people have looked with favour, suddenly seem to merit all the wrath of God. Prayerlessness, ignorance of Scripture, sins of omission, pride, self-centred living, long-forgotten sins against members of the body of Christ, words carelessly spoken, no longer defended now by a myriad of excuses, but are laid open before God. People who thought themselves worthy of heaven stand amazed that they are not in it's true in all revivals this deepening sense of holiness Campbell Morgan wrote of the Welsh revival it was characterised by the most remarkable confessions of sin I heard some of them who have been members of the church and officers of the church confessing hidden sins in their hearts impurity committed and condoned and seeking prayer for its putting away When Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, theologian and revivalist leader of the 18th century, uh, preached and his sermon was put into a booklet, it had the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now that's a book worth buying, don't you think? And uh, uh, because, as he says, such was the conviction of sin that grown men clung to trees, fearing that their sinfulness would sweep them away to hell. Generally, we don't feel like that, do we? Hello? Hey, this is going to be hard going this morning. You've got to lighten up. I've got to, or it's going to be heavy, yeah? 
I haven't grabbed hold of a tree recently for fear that my sin would sweep me away. The East African Revival, they write about the purging flame of the Holy Spirit. Christians were melted and broken before God, resulting in a renewal of zeal and deeper fellowship between believers. It was written that pagans were afraid to walk up God's hill for fear that God would take hold of them. Essential mark of the moving of God. Holiness. Now, here in Malachi, uh, turn back to it, have it open if you would. If they wanted to see God move, if they wanted revival to come, they would have to get serious about holiness. And in chapter 2, this whole issue is introduced, firstly a challenge to the priests in verses 1 to 9, and secondly a challenge to the people in verses 10 to 16. Let's think about the challenge of the priests there in Malachi uh, chapter 2. What's the page number, folks, just in case someone's lost it now? 961, great, 961, to the priests, first of all. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. God begins with the leaders of the people. He holds them responsible first. And the same is still true for church leadership today. The writer again to the Hebrews, many years later, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Leadership must never be taken lightly. Always with a deep sense of reverence and commitment to God. With the sure knowledge that in all our leading, God will hold us to account. That's not just true for me, it's true for our leadership team, it's true for trustees, the ministry team, small group leaders, junior church leaders, helpers and teachers, musical leaders, and a whole host of leading that takes place in our community. But more, before we all think, well, perhaps that's not me, thankfully. Let's remember that the priests were leaders, not just in the church, but in the nation. It was inextricably linked. They were the leaders of their religious life and of their national life. And in different ways, I guess, we're all leaders here. Leaders in business, leaders in our community, leaders in our family, leaders in our neighbourhood. And we might be saying, God, we long for your power. We long to know your life poured out, streaming through us. We long to know the blessings of the way of holiness. And God says, okay, let's have a look. Let's see how you're leading. It was a huge wake-up call to the priests in Malachi's day. What God said to them made Alan sugar seem sugar sweet, in fact. Firstly, verse 2, the leaders had to stop listening. Or the leaders had stopped listening, rather. If you do not listen, because they had, and if you do not set your hearts to one of my names, says the Lord, I'll send the curse, not the blessing. Secondly, verse 3, look, the leaders were in it for themselves. They had not set their heart to honour God's name. Their motives were mixed and corrupt. It was about themselves, their glory. They'd become self-serving and self-reliant and it was not about God anymore and His purpose. God was cross with their pretense and with their hypocrisy. But it says, verse 3, that He'd smear their faces quite literally in the dung and in the intestines of the decrepit animals that they were offering as sacrifices. That's quite strong words from heaven, don't you think? And our nice NIV uses the word awful, I guess, in the hope none of us will understand. Thirdly, verse 7, the leaders no longer held to the truth. 
For the lips of a priest ought to preserve, to hold on to knowledge. And from his mouth men should be able to seek instruction because he's the messenger of the Lord. But they weren't doing that anymore. The knowledge of God, of his worship and his ways was no longer being taught. The gospel, to put it in our vernacular, was being fudged and watered down. The truth about God was being lost in a whole heap of religiosity. And so consequently, verse 8, you've turned from the way and by your teaching you've caused many to stumble. It's one thing, stumbling yourself. Causing someone else to stumble is something altogether. And I have to say that the UK church is still recovering today from the rampant liberalism that flourished in the first half of the last century. Never mind what's happening in parts of the church at the beginning of this century. We mess with the truth of God and we wonder where the power has gone. And that's what Malachi was saying. And then right in the middle of these verses, verses 5 to 6, is this lovely cameo of what God looks for in a leader. So hey, think about where you're leading. Church, work, family, community. Where, where are you leading? Everybody here is leading someone, somewhere. How are you leading? The kind of leaders God loves. My covenant is with them. A covenant of life and peace. This is cause for reverence and they revere me and stand in awe of my name. True instruction is in their mouth. Nothing false on their lips. They walk with me in peace and uprightness and turn many from sin. That's the leading that God is asking of us. In our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our nation, through our church, that's the leading. People call to live lives in awe of God, lives embodying peace and uprightness, lives firmly rooted in the truth, lives that turn many from sin. That's a big challenge, isn't it? Sometimes we think God wants us to make the world happy. But He doesn't. He wants us to make the world holy. We might be tempted to say like they did, hey, where's God? In 2009, where is His might and His power? And God says, hey, how are you doing with these things? How are you doing with these things? How are we doing with these things? And to be clear that this call to holiness was not just for the priests. And by the way, when you get to the New Testament, there's another twist because the New Testament says we're all priests. So we can't duck out of it either way. The rest of chapter 2 goes on to talk about the unfaithfulness, not just of the priests, but of the people. And I have to say the challenge is brutal. The people are saying, where is God? Where is His might? Where is His power? Why isn't it happening here like the stories of old? And from verse 10 on, God says, you want to talk about where my power and my blessings and my reviving of you is? You want to talk about why you aren't seeing me displayed in ways of old? God says, let me ask you a question. How are your marriages? That's the question God asks. How are your marriages? A very large lump would have risen in their throats. But that was God's response to their complaint. And it seems to me that God has several things that he wants to say. Firstly, they had married outside the faith. Or to put it in our vernacular, a Christian had married a non-Christian. 
Look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now firstly, something that this is not saying. This is not trumpeting some kind of distasteful ethnic superiority which would be very much against the themes that go right through the Bible. Think about the marriage of Ruth and Boaz as just one example. But it is a thread that we find not just tucked away here in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, but a thread that runs right through the pages of both Old and New. There are several mentions of it in Genesis and then you get the first clear statement of it in Deuteronomy when God is is setting out for them the way that they should live. Do not intermarry. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly be destroyed. Remember Solomon, Andrew talked about Solomon and his kingdom and the way that that God had blessed Israel through David and then Solomon, the borders were as great as they would ever be. Solomon was was given such wisdom and so on. What's the epitaph of Solomon? The epitaph is that he fell and great was his fall for this very reason. King Solomon, it says in 1 Kings uh, 11, loved foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, it says Solomon, for all his wisdom, made this fatal mistake for himself, his kingship, and ultimately the nation. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. It was the beginning of an incredible decline. And the biggest event in Israel's history, well, the two great events, the Exodus, when God brought them into the Promised Land, and then after years of disobedience and failing in faith, God judged them, and they were taken from the Promised Land into exile. And one of the major reasons the Bible gives for this consistent depletion of faith, for this consistent inability to stay committed to God and His Word through the generations was because they'd intermarried with people who did not share faith in the one true God, Jehovah. And so when Nehemiah leads the renewal of the people, remember he was the guy that rebuilt the walls and uh, and with Ezra began to, to lead the people in renewal. First and foremost, Nehemiah, as part of the renewal, gets the people to make this promise. We promise not to do that anymore. It's been totally devastating for us. So we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, or to take their daughters for our sons. And so we could go on in the Old Testament, but the New Testament picks up the same same theme. Picking up the words that Malachi uses there in chapter 2 about one flesh, Jesus talks about it, and Paul talks about marriage being this one flesh union, having such a powerful spiritual uh, dimension. So Paul would write, hey, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And and so it goes on. I have to say that this biblical theme has been widely ignored in the UK church over this last century and is partly responsible for the huge decline that we've seen, I believe. 
In biblical times, to marry someone was to honour that person's God, small g. So in a marriage ceremony, in the same way we would come here to be married, that our marriage might be, in quotes, before God. So they would have got married with the understanding that they were getting married before God. So they would have the idols that were from each family there present in the wedding ceremony. So that they might too be married before the gods. And they would exchange their gods and take them both back to the new family home. As a recognition that as these families, as these relationships were uniting, so was their belief in these different gods. We don't exchange idols in our marriage ceremonies. But in the agreement of marriage, we do declare mutual support for each other's values, beliefs, and goals. That's what lies at the heart of a marriage relationship, the acceptance one of another. If, if I enter marriage with the thought, I'm going to change her, or maybe men, you might think more likely, she enters with the thought, I'm going to change him. Not only is that a kind of arrogant notion within which to begin a marriage, but misses the central point that this is a coming together for mutual respect and mutual support to create something new out of the two. If our Christian faith, our beliefs, our values, our priorities and morals are not shared, then our marriage commitment to support a partner with differing values inevitably has to bring our own values into a certain level of compromise. That's what marriage is. That's what lies at its heart. So you find yourself sometimes in this incredible difficult scenario. You want to worship God and your partner doesn't. You want to read the Bible and pray and your partner doesn't. You want to give time to serving God and your partner doesn't. You want to get involved in mission and spend more time serving through the church and your partner doesn't. You want to give your money to the church and to mission but your partner is saving for something quite different. You want to be salt and light in your neighbourhood, but your partner doesn't and can't. You want more than anything for your children to come to know a life-changing, living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your partner doesn't. And maybe hopes that they won't. And so the road ahead can be fraught with tension, frustration and unhappiness as the clash of the culture, of the values, ultimately of the faith, get worked out in the intimacy of marriage. You longed for a Christian marriage, but you can't pray together. You longed for a Christian marriage, but you can't read the Bible together. You can't believe God together for something. You can't dream God's purpose for your marriage, your family together. There's this incompatibility that cannot maybe be openly expressed or easily shared. That's exactly what Nehemiah talks about a few chapters later from the verses that I mentioned some moments ago. It talks about how it becomes so difficult for the next generation. I, because of this, he says, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod uh, and, and replaced the language, the idea of, of culture. They, they told the stories of that religion, of that culture, or the language of one of the other peoples, and they did not know the language, the culture, the stories of Judah and the living God. The children were growing up in a faith muddle. And with this comes great pain. Great pain. I'd like to read a letter. A letter that was written by someone who got married to a non-Christian, 
And seven years after her marriage, she sat in a church just like this one. And she wrote a letter to a girl that she was watching and enjoying leading the worship on that Sunday morning. Sorry, Sunday evening. He said, I watched you tonight. I wish for an opportunity to talk with you. I watched your beautiful face as you sang and worshipped. You reminded me of myself seven years ago. And then after church, I watched you as you got into that car with a boy who doesn't know God. Seven years ago, I was in your shoes. I'd known God since my early teens. had grown up under God-anointed preaching and teaching. But Satan, who watches diligently and waits patiently to ensnare a soul, saw me one day as I was lukewarm. I was still going to church, doing all the right things. And then I met him. I met him at work. And before long, with anyone else, without anyone else knowing it, I, I felt I couldn't live without him. He knew about genuine Christianity, and when he went to church with me, he even went to the altar and cried. And so I married him. While my family of those who loved me wept and agonized. It was just six months after that that I realized my soul was in danger and I needed a special touch from God. I prayed through and got a grip on God. Then the battle really began. No, he wasn't going to church anymore. I can count on my fingers the number of times he's been during the last seven years. Before I married him, the thought of living without him was unbearable. How lonely I would be, I thought. But now I know what real loneliness is and I'd like to tell you about it. Loneliness is receiving a blessing from God and going home to a man you can't share it with. He's not interested. Loneliness is going to a church, social alone, and watching the young couples enjoy God's blessing together. You can go alone or stay at home alone. Loneliness is feeling the urgency of Christ's coming and knowing the one you love most on earth is not ready and shows no sign of caring. Loneliness is seeing two children born and knowing that if your influence is to outweigh his, it will be a miracle. Loneliness is going to a general conference and seeing young couples everywhere who are truly one and dedicated to God's work. Loneliness is now. You will know that uh, I've always said that I, I won't marry a committed Christian to uh, a non-Christian. It's one of the hardest things about ministry here. But in an age where marriage is under such enormous pressure, how can we sanction marriages that are contrary to the Scriptures, have a compromise to the commitment of our Lord Jesus? Weaken the faith for the next generation that have such enormous tensions built into them. We must plead and encourage our young people that as they make decisions for Christ, that it is vitally important that they go out with those who have made a similar commitment. Why are so many young people, or older people now perhaps, who made commitments while they were young, no longer walking with Christ, so often a significant part of the story is that they fell in love and then married spouses who didn't share their faith. We hear the stories of committed people baptized, fired up for God, 
They get involved with an unbeliever, the hormones kick in. Soon they're walking away or just notionally hanging in there. Can we believe God for a new generation of Christian marriages? Can we believe for that? We need to create a climate where, where, where these truths are known and understood and nurtured and, and encouraged. When pe- the people are thinking about them right at the beginning of their relationship, we start going out with people these days without a second thought. But we can't. I married the girl I went out with when I was 15. Not when I was 15. But we need to understand. We communicate it to our children. Parents, when was the last time you talked about this with your kids? It's, I know it's not easy. But when was the last time? Now, I'm very aware that some of you have listened to this and you find yourself in this situation for all kinds of different reasons. First thing's this. No condemnation here. Please, please, please. This is not about making anybody feel guilty or condemned in any way. Jesus says, hey, in Christ, there's no condemnation. Free from that stuff. God has no intention of making us feel guilty. I have no intention of making us feel bad or guilty in in any way. Hey, we're not that kind of church, are we? Somebody say no, quick. Hey, we're not into that. We're not into that. God is not about heaping a load of guilt on people. God is not about uh, putting a whole extra burden on people. Whatever the circumstances of your marriage right now, God is committed to your marriage. 100%. Read about the different marriage scenarios in 1 Corinthians. You see, they, they found themselves in all kinds of different scenarios. Some had become Christians, some had married non-Christians, some had married while they were non-Christians and one partner had become a Christian and they were asking questions about how they should respond. The Bible tells you all about how to respond. And it says at the heart, God's for your marriage. God's on your side in all of this. Let's remember that God doesn't overburden us. And let's remember to give thanks to God for all the tolerance, the consideration, even support that our non-Christian partners show towards our faith, even though they may not share it. Some of us have a great deal to be thankful for. But let's also remember for, for those who carry a great burden in this area. Be prayerful and mindful. Those who suffer a great tension in their home, in their marriage, because of their faith. And hey, let's pray for non-Christian partners to come to know Christ for themselves. Of course, a Christian marriage is no guarantee, is it? Let's not get any different ideas. Christian marriage is no shelter from the storms of life and the relational pressures in our homes. A a good marriage takes huge energy and great personal cost as you give yourself to the other. As it is now, so back then, it seemed so much easier to break faith. And that's what Malachi turned to Next. They were going, why isn't God's power at work in our lives? Why, why don't we have God's blessing? Why is it not happening? Why are our prayers not answered? You ask why, verse 14. It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Hey, you can still be married and have broken faith. When we allow all the things that there are to come between us. Parts of our lives that we no longer share or have never shared. When there's distance and animosity and criticism and silence that's grown between us. When we don't dream anymore 
when we don't talk anymore. We occupy the same space, even share the same bed, but our our lives are no longer entwined with love and passion and commitment to be all to each other. We've broken faith. We might be saying, where are you, God? Where's the blessing? And God says, tell me, how are you treating your wife? How's your marriage? How are you treating your husband? What's it like between you now? Today, I think we have a responsibility as a church to do a lot more to help marriages keep strong and grow stronger. And then verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I've never met anybody who doesn't agree with God on this. Never met anybody who doesn't agree with God. Whether you've been divorced yourself, feeling responsible or feeling totally innocent whether you've watched people you know and love get divorced. Everybody hates it. It's so painful and crippling. It's crushing on our lives when trust at the deepest level falls apart. And God says, I hate it. I hate the wounds that it leaves. I hate the insecurity that is left hanging over lives. I hate the struggle that is left. I hate to see those I love limping away, hurt and wounded from a relationship in which they had put such hope. If you're God's heart, he doesn't hate people who've got divorced. Of course not. But he hates divorce. Hates what it does. Hates the way it destroys people from the inside out. Hates the way people are left feeling perhaps they'll never be the same again. Which is why these issues so matter to him. Which is why he's so passionate about strong marriages. Why he's so committed to healthy families. Physically, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. And as we yearn for the outpouring of his blessing on our lives, on our homes, and on our churches, we long to be revived. God looks and says, will you be committed to the things that are on my heart? Will you be passionate about the things that I'm passionate about? Will you stand for the things that I stand for? God looks for a commitment from us to these things that match his heart. Hey, these are big issues, aren't they? Big issues of of personal consequence to each one of us. Without sounding trite or to use a cliche, I want to say deeply and profoundly, but simply the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every situation that we find ourselves in. Some of these issues may have caused you a lot of pain. Maybe they're still causing you an awful lot of pain today. When Jesus started his ministry, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah about how he came to so powerfully work God's desire. It was not to condemn, but to rebuild. God's desire to rebuild lives that feel crushed and broken. I'm going to pray these words from Isaiah for each one of us. Jesus came saying, this is what I want to bring to this world. Healing, forgiveness, restoration, a new beginning. Let's pray and then we'll sing. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus said of himself, is on me. I've come to this earth with the Lord's anointing. I've come to be good news. 
to people in poverty of any kind. I've come to be good news. I've come to be a blessing. The Father in heaven has sent Jesus the Son. He sent me to bind up broken hearts. To proclaim freedom for the captives. He sent me to release those feeling imprisoned by darkness. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He sent me to comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who grieve. And hear the promise now for your situation and mine. I've come to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called, that's you and me, oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They'll rebuild and restore the places long devastated. So to my life and yours, come, Lord Jesus, come.